So theology should lead to doxology. Theology should lead to doxology. Uh, knowing God better should lead to worshiping God more. The, the proclamation of God's word should lead to the valuing of God's worth. Understanding the grace of the gospel should lead to glorifying the God of the gospel. All, all these different ways of saying theology should lead to doxology. This is the pattern that we see in scripture at large. And this is the pattern that we see from Paul in the book of Ephesians. You can open your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And, and this morning we are looking at verses 20 and 21. We've been in this series since the beginning of the year. And we've been making our way through the first three chapters of this letter. And in these three chapters, Paul has been writing theology. Specifically, the theology of the grace of the gospel. He's written about the spiritual blessings that we've received by God's grace in Christ. He's written about how God has made us alive by his grace with Christ. And he's, and he's written about how the new people of God is created by his grace through Christ. And, and here he concludes this first section of the book. And as, as he concludes this first half of the book, what we see is all of this theology leading to this climactic moment of doxology. Read with me verses 20 and 21. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. As Paul writes these, these mysteries of the gospel, it, it all leads him to this one moment of just bursting out. Now to him be glory. Theology leads to doxology. But as we think about the doxology itself, as we look at these words, we, we realize there's something more going on here too. Not only does the theology of Ephesians lead to this doxology, but, but also this doxology actually teaches us more theology. Paul doesn't just say, now to him be glory, does he? He, he, says, he? he tells us more about this God who deserves glory. He tells us more about how he will receive glory. He uses the doxology to, to teach us more truth about God. He's, he's, he's simultaneously praising God and teaching us more about him. Now last week we looked at Paul's prayer in verses 14 through 19, his prayer for the Ephesians. And, and we should say that what he prayed in verses 14 through 19 was a big prayer. I mean, it's what you call a big prayer, a big request. Paul prayed that God would strengthen the Ephesians' hearts with the Holy Spirit's power so that they would be controlled by the presence of Christ, in order that they would comprehend the love of Christ, so that they would ultimately be conformed to the character of Christ as God fills them with his very fullness. It's a big prayer. And it would be easy to hear a prayer like this. You can imagine maybe someone praying for you this way, and it'd be easy to just discount it as, as just lofty spiritual language. One commentator writes, is it possible that such a prayer could be answered and not just be a pious hope? Paul uses this doxology to answer that question. And the answer is, it is absolutely possible. Through these words of praise, Paul shows us that God can and God will answer big prayers like this one. And he shows us this by teaching us really two truths about God within this doxology. Two, two things that he teaches us about God in this doxology. And so the first thing he, he teaches us is about the power of God. 
Paul uses this doxology to teach us about the power of God. All of Paul's doxologies are, are a little bit different. They all describe God in a unique way that fits with the context of the letter he's writing. And, and in this doxology, he focuses in on the fact that God is powerful. Look at verse 20 again. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Now, Paul could have just said, now to him who is powerful, or even to him who is all-powerful. But he doesn't just say that. You know, if I wanted to get you to try Five Guys, which is one of my favorite restaurants in the world, does anyone else agree with that? Favorite restaurant in the world. I could just say, it's good. It's good, you should try it. But that's not what I would say. What I would say is this, their meat is fresh. Their toppings are free. Their milkshakes are the milkiest and the shakiest. And their french fries are mind-bogglingly delicious and seemingly never-ending. And there's peanuts. And of course, the difference between me just saying it's good and saying what I just said is that it stirs you up and it convinces you that what I'm saying is true. It makes you want it more. That's what Paul's doing here. Now, my goal today is not to convince you to eat five guys, though I hope you will now that I've said that. But it is to convince you that God is powerful. And so let's just think about the language that Paul uses here. And let's just see how it kind of stacks up the, the way he uses the terms. Let's just start simple. He says that God is able to do what we ask. God is able to do what we ask. So, so what is something that you are asking God for right now? Just think about it for a second. What is something that you are asking God for right now? God is able to do that. He's able. Or to raise the stakes, what is the biggest thing that you're asking God to do right now? What, 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 is the, what is the biggest request in your life right now? God is able to do that thing. There is nothing that we can ask God that he is not able to do. He, he is able to do what we ask. But that's not all that Paul says. Not only that, Paul says God is able to do what we ask or think. You know, we might not always even be consciously aware of this, but in our minds, don't we kind of assign a stopping point to the things that we feel like we can ask God for in prayer? Now, I don't mean big houses and nice cars and lots of money. I think we rightly don't ask God for these things. But I mean good things, th things that we can imagine with our minds but are just so seemingly huge requests that we don't even consider praying for it. Uh, for, for instance, community revival. I mean, this is something that I can think of in my mind, but it's just such a big request that I don't actually pray for it. I just think about it. And Paul's saying here, no, God is able to do even the things that we think. If we can imagine it, God can do it. Not only that, he says God is able to do more than what we ask or think. To just carry that example forward, not only can God bring revival to our community, God can bring revival to our country. Whatever we might ask about, whatever we might even just imagine, God is able to do even more than that. Not only that, he says God is able to do far more abundantly than what we ask or think. You should know that Paul literally makes up a word here to try and express what he's saying. This phrase, far more abundantly, is, is what Greek scholars call a super superlative. And, and it's, it's the most extreme form of comparative language that Paul could think of. And, and, and really, the, the best translation would be infinitely more. God can do infinitely more than all that we ask or think. And here we see that there is no extent to God's ability. There is no limit to God's power. 
There's no end to God's resources to do what we ask or think. One commentator says it's impossible to ask too much since the Father's giving exceeds our capacity for asking or even imagining. We can never ask for too much. His power is limitless. And not only that, he says God is able to do far more abundantly than what we ask or think in us. Notice that phrase at the end, according to the power at work within us. This limitless power of God that Paul is describing is the same power that is at work within our own hearts by his spirit. And I want you to notice the connection between the prayer from last week and this passage. In last week's prayer, he asked God to fill the church with his fullness by strengthening them with power by his spirit in their inner being. And now he says that God is able to do infinitely more than that by his power at work in their inner being. This is why he focuses on the power of God in this doxology. He's communicating to the church that God can answer this prayer. You think 14 through 19 is a big prayer? God can do it. He can do whatever we ask. He can do more than we ask. He can do far abundantly more than we ask or even think. He can do it in us. So yes, it is a big prayer to ask God to fill us with his very fullness. To, to, say, to say to God, God, fill Redeemer Church with your very fullness. This is a big prayer. But it's not too big for an all-powerful God. He can answer prayers like this. He can do it. Do you remember the story in Mark 9 about the father whose son was demon-possessed? And, and he, the disciples couldn't cast the demon out. Jesus actually says to them at the end, it has to be driven out. By prayer. They, they were not praying. So, so they bring him to Jesus. And here is what the father said to Jesus. He said, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Do you remember what Jesus said in response? He said, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Jesus, Jesus says, what do you mean, if you can? Don't, don't you know who I am? I am the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that you ask or think. If you can... And how did the father respond? He said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. So this morning, you might be struggling to believe that God can do something in your life. You might be struggling to believe that he can help your marriage. You might be struggling to believe that he can free you from a particular sin that he can provide for your family's needs, that he can seal, heal, he can heal a sick friend, that he can save that lost family member. Hear this morning that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And then cry out to him, I believe, help my unbelief. He can do it. And so pray to him, I believe, help my unbelief. For others of you, however, your struggle this morning might be slightly different. Your struggle is not necessarily like the father's struggle in Mark 9. You do believe that God can do it. You believe that God is limitless in his power. Your struggle is more like the leper's struggle in Matthew 8. This leper came to Jesus and said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So it's not that you don't think God can, it's that you aren't sure if God will. That's where the doubt enters in. Not that he 
Not that he couldn't do it, but, but will he do it? And Paul has an encouragement for us here as well. He not only teaches us about the power of God, he also teaches us about the plan of God. The plan of God. So let's look at verse 21 now. He says, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You know, this language should immediately surprise us, specifically that Paul would say, not only to him be glory in Christ Jesus, but also in the church. That he would include the church in this. What does Paul mean here when he says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus? So, so let's take the one that's easier to understand first. To him be glory in Christ Jesus. Now let's think about what is Paul saying here. This is not Paul calling on Jesus to give glory to God. Paul, Paul's not addressing Jesus saying, Jesus glorify God. Right? We, we know he's not doing that. To him be glory in Christ Jesus. This is Paul declaring that God is glorified in Jesus Christ. God is glorified in him. And we see this message throughout the New Testament. Jesus Christ reveals the glory of God perfectly. He is the word who became flesh, and in him we have seen God's glory. He is the fullness of deity. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He perfectly reveals in his person and work all who God is. His love, his grace, his power, his wisdom, his righteousness, his holiness. Jesus Christ displays the very essence of the glory of God. So this is the plan of God, to be glorified in Christ Jesus, for his glory to be put on display in Christ Jesus. God is glorified in his son, Jesus Christ. We get this. We understand this. Now, if that's what to him be glory in Christ Jesus means, then what about the parallel phrase, to him be glory in the church? Well, they're parallel statements, so, so they work the same way, which means that just like he's not calling Jesus to give glory to God, so here... In this instance, he's not, he's not just telling the church, glorify God. I mean, that is what we should do. And Paul says that in this letter. That's not what he's saying here. He's not just saying, glorify God, church. No, rather, he's declaring that just as God is glorified in Jesus Christ, so also God is glorified in the church. The church displays God's glory. The only problem with this is that we are not like Jesus. I mean, it makes sense to us that God is glorified in Jesus Christ, but how is God glorified in sinful people like us? How could Paul put us next to Christ like this? And the answer is that God is glorified in sinful people like us by putting his glory on display toward us, toward us. Just think about what we've seen in Ephesians. The glory of God's grace is on display in the church as he graciously responds to our sins by sending Christ to redeem us through his death on the cross and purchase our forgiveness. We see the glory of God's grace as God graciously forgives sinners like us. We see the glory of God's love on display in the church as he lovingly chooses to save us, gives his son for us, and adopts us into his family. As we are loved by God, his love is put on display. The glory of his power is on display in the church as he takes dead rebel sinners and makes them alive with Christ and enables them to live new transformed lives. His power is on display there in us. The glory of his wisdom is on display in the church as he takes former enemies like Jew and Gentile and he reconciles them into one new body through Christ's blood. We see the wisdom of God in his plan to bring all people groups into one body. It's on display in us. So, so 
Do you want to see the very essence of the glory of God? You look at Jesus Christ. But do you want to see the strongest evidence for the glory of God? You look at the church. Jesus is the essence of God's glory. The church is the strongest evidence of his glory. It shows, it's, it's God's glory on display toward us who are sinners, who are weak, who are nothing left to ourselves. And this is Paul's plan. This is God's plan. This is God's plan that, that he will be glorified in Christ, but also in the church. And notice this is not just an ideal that Paul's praying for. This is the reality he's declaring. He says, throughout all generations, forever and ever. This is true throughout all generations, forever and ever. This phrase kind of speaks of time in two different vantage points. When you think of a generation, you think of the passing of time. Generation after generation after generation. So, so, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that millennials like me were the new kids on the block. But now we're old news. The Gen Zers have come. I don't know what comes after Z, but you get the point. God is glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus generation after generation after generation. From Paul's generation to now, throughout all of history, this will be true. God will be glorified in the church and in Christ. But then he also says forever and ever. And this phrase points us beyond the generations, beyond history into eternity. When all things have reached their culmination, when Christ returns and brings in a new heaven and new earth, then forever and ever throughout all eternity, God will be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus. The church is his eternal plan for displaying his glory, just as Christ is the eternal display of God's glory. So here's the point, and here's how this connects back to prayer. God's plan is to be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forever. That's his plan to be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forever. This is his will. He has bound his own glory, his own display of his glory to Christ and to us. And so the power of God that we saw in verse 20, this tells us that God can answer our prayers. But how can we be confident that he will answer our prayers? We can be confident that he will answer our prayers when we pray according to this plan. When we make our fundamental request, whatever we're praying for, when we make our fundamental request, God be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus. When our prayers serve the plan of God to display his glory in the church and in Christ, then we can be absolutely confident he will answer those prayers. It might not always look like what we think it will look like, but he will answer those prayers. This is his eternal plan now and forever. So he can do it. That's what verse 20 teaches us. He can answer these prayers, but verse 21 teaches us he will do it. He will answer these prayers when they are prayed according to his plan to be glorified both in Christ and in us. He can do it and he will do it. I want to give a few applications this morning for us based on these truths. The first is really the same as last week, which is I want to call you this morning to prayer. This, this passage is a, an encouragement and a reinforcement that the prayers that Paul prayed in 14 through 19, God will answer those. And so, so I want to call you this morning to come to the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or imagine. Come to the God who works in us by his powerful spirit. Come to the God whose plan through both history and eternity is to display his glory in the church and in Christ and seek his blessing. You know, James puts it as straightforwardly as possible in his letter. In James 4, 2, here's what he says. 
You do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. By God's grace, let's just open up our hearts to this right now. Are we truly asking God to work in our midst? Are we truly seeking his powerful spirit's strengthening of our hearts? Are we actually asking God in a regular way, let us be controlled by your presence. Let us comprehend your love. Let us be filled with your fullness. If these things aren't happening, it's not because God can't do it. And it's not because God doesn't will to do it. It may be because we simply are not actually asking. You do not have because you do not ask. May God help us to be a church that humbly and consistently asks him to work in big ways in and through us. That's what this text is calling us to, to to know he can, to know he will, and so to humble ourselves and ask. And he will do it. We'll see. He will answer prayers like this. I want to take this a little deeper still. What, what, What if we do ask and yet we don't receive? What about that, you might say? In that case, our first response should simply be to persevere in the asking. You know, Jesus told several parables to this effect. He talked about the friend who needed bread coming to the house at midnight and not going away, and the widow who sought justice with the wicked judge over and over. And Jesus taught us through these parables that we should persevere in our prayers because God is not a friend who wants to shut the door. God is not an evil judge. God will hear. God will listen. God will heed. And so sometimes in his wisdom, God does not answer right away. He wants us to persevere. He wants us to keep seeking, to keep praying, to keep asking. And so if we're asking and not receiving, persevere. Yet, as we persevere in prayer, as we ask and ask and ask, we should also keep in mind what James says next. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So first he says, you don't have because you don't ask. But then he says, okay, you do ask, but you don't receive because you're asking wrongly. You're asking, but you're not asking in the right way. And so God is not answering your request. So so what is the wrong way? He says they're asking to spend it on their passions. What What that means is that they're asking God to do something in service of their own idols. They're looking to God to answer requests so that they can get what they want out of their passions, their sinful idols that they've set up. God will not answer requests like this. He will not honor requests when our heart level motivation in asking is to serve our own sinful passions and our own idols. And just to give a concrete example of what this might look like, I believe it's a good thing that we should pray that God would use us to save the lost. That's a good thing to pray for. It's a big thing to pray for. God, use this church to save unbelievers, to save the lost. And so if that's not happening, then first we need to consider his words. You do not have because you do not ask. God can do this. We know that that this is according to his plan to be glorified, so we know that he he will do it. But are we asking him to do it? Are, Are we asking? We ought to be seeking the Lord for this as a church. Yet, it's possible that we are asking for this very thing, but we are asking wrongly. It's possible to be asking God to save the lost, but not for the sake of his glory, but for the sake of our own glory. 
Maybe so we feel pride in our size. Or maybe so we feel validated in our ministry. Or whatever other selfish passion we might be serving. It's possible to ask, but to ask wrongly. And so this brings us back to where we began. This passage is a doxology. At the very core of it are the words, Now to him be glory. This is the heart-level worship that God seeks in us as we seek him in prayer. Underneath our asking, we must have a heart of praising. And so this message is not just a call to pray, but it is a call to praise. If we are going to be a church that humbly asks our powerful God to work in big ways in and through us, then we must also be a church that is continually drawn into the worship of God. And if we're going to be marked by this sort of doxology, then we need to hear and embrace gospel theology. Because theology leads to doxology. Ephesians 1, 3-14 reminds us three times that God saved us to the praise of his glory. That's how this letter starts. God saved you to the praise of his glory. And, and then Paul tells us about this. Here's what this letter says about this salvation. Just listen to what we've heard these last few months. God chose us before the foundation of the world. God predestined us for adoption into his family. God redeemed us and forgave our sins through the blood of Christ. God made known to us the mystery of his will. God secured for us an eternal inheritance. God sealed us with the Holy Spirit. When we were dead, he made us alive with Christ. When we were following our spiritual enemies, God turned us into followers of Christ. When we were children of wrath, God made us objects of grace. When we were alienated from God's people and without hope, without God in this world, he reconciled us and made us citizens of his kingdom, members of his family, stones in his new temple. He did all of this to the praise of his glory. And Paul's response to all of this is now to him be glory. And I want to ask you this morning to look at the last word of our passage, 321, amen, how he ends, amen. And I want to ask you, is your heart saying amen to the saving realities laid out in Ephesians? Is your heart with Paul this morning, now to him be glory? This is where we need to be. And if it is, praise God and just keep digging deeper into all of this rich gospel theology that has led you to this point. But if it's not, if your heart is not saying amen to these truths this morning, if you are not with Paul saying to him be glory, then I want to encourage you and call you this morning to bring your heart to the Lord and confess to him and say, God, I'm unmoved. I'm unmoved, Lord. I'm hearing these glorious truths, but they are not striking my heart as glorious. Search me, Lord. Know me. Shine light on me. Help me. Save me. Soften my heart and open my eyes. Do whatever it takes in my life to move my heart to this point of declaring with Paul, now to you be glory. And then just keep praying that. Keep asking. Ask and ask and ask. You do not have because you do not ask. So ask him and keep digging deeper into the word. And know that God can and God will answer that prayer in your life. The biggest thing we can pray, the biggest request we can make for ourselves and for our church, is that God would work it in our hearts, now to him be glory. And God can answer that, and God will answer that. And so let's pray that this week, and let's praise God as he works that in us.